1: This edition of How To Be A CEO is brought to you by the AXA Startup Angel Competition. I'm Sharmadine Reid, Founder and CEO of The Stack World, and I'm here to help you turn your business dream into reality. There are six chances to win the competition, including two top prizes of £25,000, mentoring from myself and leading UK founders, plus business insurance for a year thanks to AXA. Go to standard.co.uk forward slash AXA Startup Angel for details on how to enter and complete your entry by the 2nd of June, 2024. Good luck. ES Audio. It'd be a bit mean, but if you walked into pretty much any financial organisation on Wall Street or elsewhere and whispered, CFA exam. You'd hear the coffee cups drop and possibly some weeping. The chartered financial analyst qualification is known as the world's toughest exam, which also makes it one of the most sought after. The pass rate for level one of three was 36% last February. A lot of people fail first time round.
0: Yes, I would be one of those people. (laughs) Fall asleep in the
1: exam. Mark Franklin picked herself up and is now the CEO of the CFA Institute which apart from administering a brutal exam around the world, promotes education, ethics and professional excellence in the investment profession. And that's one that took a big hit during the pandemic.
0: For us, it was consequential, right? We were unable for the very first time in our history to not administer exams for pretty much a full year everywhere in the world.
1: I'm David Marsden from The Evening Standard. The CFA is celebrating its 75th anniversary this year, so it's navigated many eras of economic uncertainty. So when we meet Mark, I want to know how
0: the way to stay relevant is two things. One is to know specifically what your unique value proposition is. What is it that we do and then have a system that informs the way you keep that value proposition alive and well. So for us, it's really twofold. One is professional excellence and then excellence of the profession. So if you think about the individuals that populate the industry, that's really about making sure they have excellent, very high quality professional skills through learning from career entry to career exit. And then when you think about excellence of the profession, it's capitalizing on our role in the industry to have research advocacy and standards really oriented, not as a trade association or as a commercial entity, but really focusing our efforts around the investor outcomes, capital market integrity for the ultimate benefit side. So as you rightly pointed out, so much has changed, and I would observe that change is accelerating. And so we want to make sure that we have the right inputs. Those inputs come from desktop research, what we see going on in, in the world and the data that we gather. But it's of equal measure the interaction we have with employers, regulators, Uh, investment professionals, subject matter experts, and putting that together through our practice analysis, through our surveying work, through our roundtables and interactions generally with the industry and making sure that our curriculum, both for the CFA program, but also for lifelong learning through our professional learning uh, and development is really properly calibrated so that investment professionals can be the very best that they can be to make sure that they're operating at the highest standard.
1: What's interesting is that going through all of those changes, how you work has changed dramatically, but the core mission, I guess, of the CFA hasn't really changed at all, has it? It's very simple. It's very effective. This is what we do. How we do it might change, but this is what we do.
0: So we actually, um, when I arrived, undertook an exercise to really um, interrogate and evaluate the durability of the mission, you know, to lead the investment industry with the highest standards of ethics, education, and professional excellence, for the ultimate benefit of society. And, you know, we continue to see incredible durability and foundational um, orientation of that mission. How we deliver on that mission and the strategies and initiatives that we put behind it, of course, will change over time, um, you know, to adapt to new market and the changing investment landscape, but equally the changing nature of the investment professionals that are coming in And for us in particular, the changing nature of how people learn, adapt new behaviors, new skills and capabilities. And that's changing just as much as the investment landscape and then put a big wrapper around that of what people entering the industry and employment generally, what they're looking for in the employee value proposition and the organizational value proposition and what society is demanding of our industry is dramatically changing. And then we have a pandemic and then we have a war and we have a few other things to add a little chaotic element to
1: it. I want to talk about a couple of, of those things, but what I'm, I'm really interested in is, you were talking about how society itself is changing. We have Gen Z coming into the workforce right now. What are their priorities?
0: Gen Z, I think, is a, a marvellous injection into us reevaluating our purpose. And that is that Gen Z in particular... Um, through technology, through social media, information transmission quickly and effectively is demanding, I think, an integration of personal values and professional contribution. So when we did our graduate outlook study, 87% of people who are entering the workforce in this industry have uh, two very particular things. They want to know that what they're doing professionally, is making a societal contribution and an environmental contribution. And the data, the clarity of the messaging, and we see that all around us. I think the collateral consequence of that is, of course, that we all benefit as a society from that. That's really what do people want? They want interesting work with good people, fair pay, and with some purpose. And now people are demanding that purpose component is, you know, injecting and infecting all kinds of industries, including ours, which is great. I think it's
1: interesting because I think everybody has kind of always wanted those sort of ideals, but Gen Z's demanding them, aren't they? And they're getting them.
0: Yeah. Well, I think um, a couple of things contribute to that. One is if you look at the... the talent pool like obviously this is a smaller cohort we have an aging cohort that will start has begun to retire and so that cohort um, coming in is saying we think we can do better we expect to do better and you will meet us where we're at if you want us to um, be in your industry and you know there are a lot of industries there are a lot of skills that we have or require in the industry that are applicable to other competing industries. And yet, you know, investments done well and finance is so critically important for the properly functioning of economies and societies. So it behooves us to really reimagine the future of work such that we can get the very best into our industry because we're going to be in, I think, a, a secularly challenging period of time. It makes a super interesting context to come into an exciting context, but we need to be able to make sure that we're attracting the right people and that we're competing to get the best in here.
1: But one of the, I'd guess, one of the biggest problems for people who are just entering the workforce now, and particularly those with an ambition to, to secure leadership roles, is working from home. And I know that the, the CFA has released its uh, Future of Work report looking into these kinds of aspects. Are there problems with people coming into offices, but actually not, not, meeting their, they're not meeting their colleagues, maybe not getting that kind of mentorship that you might have expected when you'd, you'd first started a job? Is it, is it harder to succeed for somebody just starting in work today?
0: I think the benefits of working from home and the challenges of working from home each have separate dimensions. First of all, I think for every CEO, it's challenging the essential nature of work. Like what does need to be done in the office? Why do we come together? Are we very clear about those things? There's many, many things that were implicit in our business and operating models that we didn't even really question. It's just like you didn't interrogate those things. And now we're getting to sort of almost existential, essential um, evaluation of those propositions. The good news is, is nobody has a playbook for this. The pandemic, nobody, no CEO, no leader knows what to do. We don't have historical playbooks for a modern context that we can pull off the shelf and say, here's what it is. So that's gonna require greater imagination, greater empathy, a focus on context as well as content. And what I see, which is so heartening, is both a vulnerability and a candor and a collaboration among CEOs that people will really, and leaders will really share in a way, even if you're competitors, because we know that we all do better um, by addressing what is now a systemic challenge and opportunity. And I think that's just like very exciting and um, unusual. And so that's an upside to it.
1: Is that how you approached it initially, Marg? Were you excited about what's happening here or were you like rather a lot of people going, I, as you said, there's no playbook, what do I do? <laughs> I mean, how how have you had to
0: adapt? Well, look, for us, it was consequential, right? We were unable for the very first time in our history to not administer exams for pretty much a full year everywhere in the world. We had transitioned to computer-based testing. Um, We did our first computer-based test in February of 21. So hugely consequential um, for us. And I think if you can kind of cast your mind back, I mean, I did my last trip. I got out of Australia two days before they shut it down. I mean, I was like, we'll just keep an eye on when I need to come back. I mean, talk about naive and and ill informed and no context. So, maximum uncertainty. Nobody really understood how this was going to play out and the duration of it. We, of course, have proven in two years that one, the world could go to digital. Almost immediately in our industry, it's shocking that that could happen so quickly with so little consequence to the disruption to, to, to the disruption of systems, because these are vital systems for economies for the daily functioning of life. We conducted a um, CEO roundtable of investment managers and, uh, you know, the big reveal was nobody missed a beat. And when you think about traders, the most surveilled activity in the investment management industry, um, even they could do it. What we did see though was a democracy around challenges. Didn't matter whether you were a CEO or any other job, competing for broadband with your children, Uh, your dog coming in front of your screen, the soundtrack of your life now on full display, those were applicable to all of us. And that equalizing factor, I think, has created a humanity approach to evaluating what are going to be really challenging problems. I might note, and we're just in the early stages of this, that after two years of the pandemic, I think we are seeing much greater evidence of mental challenges a different type of challenge emerging as we come back to work. As we figure these things out, because there isn't great certainty, you know, and I think what do people crave right now, they want certainty. So I think we're starting to see the effects of pandemic on, you know, our children, our older people. You know, how is this all going to work? Being isolated for two years is not um, a risk free circumstance. So I think it's going to be interesting how we start to deal with all of these issues because they do come to the workplace. And we now have greater visibility into that. And I think, again, a better integration of people's personal and professional lives.
1: And, and again, that influx of those younger people where things like mental health are more important to them, or at least they're, they're prepared to talk about them. That's changing the culture, really, isn't it? It's making, it's making corporations, making companies more open to having these discussions and, and also recognising, I think, problems that have probably been there for a very long time.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it's a tricky period um, because when you get into these spaces, like, we're not experts on this, right? And you're really having to deal with it no matter what you do as a CEO, you know, even with the best of intentions and with the best data and information that you have at the moment and the best instincts. I think we're being asked to be much, to use our experience and our technical skills and our professional skills but in a more instinctive way, as we navigate through this, you will not be able to satisfy all of your employees, all of your constituents. And uh, I think the discourse that's going on in society, in companies, in, you know, amongst stakeholders is um, one we've never really seen before. Speed and transmission of information, democratic platforms, uh, you know, create an interesting challenge for CEOs.
1: Let's go to the ads now. And while they're on, do please hit the follow button on your podcast provider. We'll be back after these.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus,
2: In a given month, over
0: 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
2: Hi, I'm Lawrence Delaglio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance.
1: When you were talking to those CEOs and, and, and doing those roundtables discussions, did you get an impression that people wanted to return to the pre-pandemic world of people coming back into the office? Or was there a, either an acceptance that that's not going to happen or maybe a determination not to let it happen again? Where, where were people?
0: So six weeks into it, I think people were, were really thinking in probably 90-day increments. Like, how do we shore up our operations? What are our single points of failure? People started to talk about very early on resiliency through redundancy had this just in time, just financially calibrated system, maybe not thought about risk in the same way. So really rich and robust discussions. And I don't think anybody had a clue whether we were going back soon or whether we would be in for the long haul. So I think it was an opportunity to really evaluate how the system was holding up. And really to think about our people in a very different way. At the end of the day, you know, we are a people business that, old adage that you know your assets come up and down the elevator every single day took on a whole new meaning when you know your talent goes from the kitchen to the bedroom to the living room trying to find a spot where they've got broadband and quiet and all these kinds of things I, um I, I i think we'll need a bit of distance to really put all of that into place but i think it's going to be an extraordinarily rich period of imagination, creativity, and new structures that will emerge. And I don't believe that we know them. So in my case, I've been particularly adherent to not being declarative in what it will be like, I think, at your own peril. Then I'm cognizant that I'm of a certain age, that my children are... Um, you know, want, they're in their careers. They are, though I paid very particular attention, we had a, a very extensive conversations because they were both onboarded um, in a virtual world. And uh, the context of culture is you can't do it in two dimensions. And even the introverts who thought this was a bonanza that they wouldn't have to go to the <laughs> office. I said, watch in two months, you know, they'll miss it. And for even introverted people, the morning routine of saying good morning and a social flora and fauna, however you engage with it, when you take that away, it's it's deeply absent. Humans are social creatures to varying degrees. And I think business and offices are some of the last bastions of physical community.
1: I want to talk about the, the CFA itself and how you guys have been doing because you, you spoke about how you had to cancel the exams for the first time in your history. I mean, how have you brought people back into doing stuff how did you keep people you know look it might be a year might even be longer but we we really want you to stay in how did you encourage those people to, to stay involved with the cfa
0: so um first of all let's talk about our candidates because they were the most impacted right these are people who have studied really hard they've sacrificed they've been dedicated and then they're disrupted and um what became evident in the first sort of, I would say two or three administrations was that those candidates that had been deferred had, you think about performing for a sports athlete, you know, they train and they train and they train for this particular moment and peak for performance on the day that you have to perform. Well, now all that's been disrupted and we didn't have a playbook for how to enable candidates to quickly, uh, get back on track to be able to do those exams. After the second or third administration, we saw a lot of data that showed us that deferred candidates simply weren't performing as well. And so how did we engage with them? We shared with them our insights and data. We looked to our experience bank. Many of us are charter holders. We, it takes us two seconds to go back to that moment. It really is an iconic moment for most of us. And to think about our own experiences, we did tips and tricks, videos for candidates. We had a My Charter story, which was sort of charter holders from all around the world were contributing to what the charter meant to them, the circumstances that they had to overcome to get there, what it meant for their careers. We started to populate sort of some of our social media and outreach with those kind of inspiration, aspiration, tips and tricks, and then the evidence to help get candidates back on. But it's been challenging for a number of candidates, our candidates most notably in China and in Beijing. and you know, Beijing hasn't been able to sit for now any administration, day for one. And that becomes that becomes disheartening. Um, and so we're really working on how to do um, better for, for our candidates. For our yeah. members, they've had a lot of professional learning, a lot of um, digital engagement. So we've seen greater engagement from our members in a way that they wouldn't have done if it was all physical. Yeah, one
1: of the challenges coming out of this pandemic for companies working on a, on a global scale, or even, you know, SMEs just trying to work with to get themselves out internationally, is that different countries are at different stages of coming out of the pandemic. And that means that you have to do different things all over the world. It becomes increasingly more complicated, doesn't it?
0: It does become more complicated because, you know, we sit hundreds of thousands of candidates every year through the three levels of the exam. So there's an administrative logistics element to it. And then there's keeping the candidate experience as long as can. Um, I think... However, the different speeds and different experiences ultimately will enrich the candidate experience as we capitalize on what we're learning, and um, w- will make our system better as we as we go forward. Candidates are terrific at sharing their experience; they're very vocal in what they need, and that makes us better.
1: One thing you could do at the CFA is is maybe make the exam a bit easier.
0: Okay. This is a great one. We were challenged on our low pass rates, right? And so this is quite an an important feature. We don't move the bar. We we have invested heavily and, and always have and always will. So this is how we got to 75 years with a globally recognized prestigious program. And that is because the investments we have always made in the quality of the candidate come from really three things. It's making sure that what we're testing on, what we're teaching is valid for employers and ergo candidates want to write. So making sure we get the right content in there, making sure that we have the right course, but most importantly, that our testing ensures the quality of the candidate that comes through. So we have a fixed bar and it goes across time. And so When I got mine in 1997, it will still have the same value appropriate for today. So it's been a short term hit for us to have these uh, for a period of time, historically low pass rates. We see them coming back, but we will not sacrifice the quality or make it easier. That's for sure.
1: But I wanted to know, we've talked so much about how things have been disrupted and how things have changed. This time 20 years ago, could you as a woman have been the CEO of the CFA?
0: Probably not. Um, So I have a 30 year history in the career. And I can tell you, you know, my greatest joy is to be in this position. And the reason is. Um, at the time, in the early 90s, I would never have had the career I had without the CFA charter program. It enabled me to have uh, really a, a great career. And I thought it was could be an, inter- an industry that would be interesting and satisfying and, and never dull. And it has been all of those things. But without the CFA charter, I would never have been able to rise in the way I have. So now, um, you know, having a, a different look to the CEO, visibility is validity. If I can, if I can see it, I can imagine it. So um, as you probably know, I'm a huge champion for diversity. Um, obviously, we're trying to get more women into the business. And if we can sort of crack that code, we think we can open it up much more broadly. And it's not diversity, it is because it's right, but it's mainly because. core tenet of investment management is diversification, right? It's better risk mitigation, better return opportunities. And the same thing goes to team construction and to leadership construction. So, you know, the thing about the CFA program, unlike most prestigious um, programs, where the hardest part is to get in, anybody can take the CFA. It's accessible and it's affordable, democratic on the way in, entirely meritocratic, back to your point about You know, we don't make it easier. It's a fixed standard, entirely meritocratic on the way out. And um, I think that adds so much to the richness and validity and desire for, um, for the Charter. So I think I am the first CEO, female CEO. I don't think I'll be the last. And I don't think our diversity will end up in just sort of a, a female CEO, because I think what you're going to see is that we're going to be able to engage with a more diverse uh, work population. And then that'll make us better over, over the years to come.
1: Are those women who are in Gen Z joining the workforce today, will they face the same barriers that you and other people you know have faced?
0: I don't think they'll face the same barriers, just something like acknowledging um, family life, whether that's elder care, child care, you know, whatever circumstances it is. That that, genie is not going back into the bottle. Um, But, you know, whenever you... Break some of those barriers, the expectations ratchet up. So I think until we have systems that accommodate a greater variety of life circumstances and that integration of professional and personal, and we figure out how to measure, how to um, capitalize on people's talents, create autonomy, right? Isn't that mastery and autonomy? This is what makes people very satisfied. When we have the systems, which will be driven by gen z they're going to face different challenges but they won't be any less um challenging and i don't think we have solved the issue of accommodating for in particular um, children and how how that integrates how we have on ramps off ramps how we how we accommodate different stages of um, career we're getting better at it i i think we'll spend the next day, decade working on that
1: That was Mark Franklin of the CFA Institute. For the latest and best business news, read the Evening Standard newspaper or head to standard.co.uk forward slash business. How to Be a CEO is back first thing on Monday morning. We'd love to see you again.